0: You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. Welcome to this month's episode of The Vet Chat. I'm your host, Steve O'Ealy. In what will be my final episode of the Vet Chat as host, I speak with Meg Irvine. She's the founder of Vet Life Skills, where she trains vets to improve their client communication, in particular developing rapport with clients and handling different situations. Today you'll learn from Meg some quick and easy ways that you can improve rapport with your clients, what to do when things go wrong, in particular dealing with a very sick animal or an aggressive client, and things you can do every day to ensure you're practising these skills. We also talked briefly about her transition from being a full-time vet to being a part-time vet, and then getting back on track in terms of developing herself as a vet, and in other areas. I hope you enjoyed this month's episode of the Vet Chat. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks Meg for coming on the Vet Chat podcast.
1: It is my pleasure.
0: So before we get into the vet life skills side of things, um, I thought it might be good for you to just give a little bit of a summary of your career so far
1: yeah so it's probably a fairly average career really probably quite similar to lots of other vets around new zealand so graduated at massey and then i actually went to australia for my first year out and was in mixed animal practice for a year and had a pretty traumatic new graduate experience a sort of fairly toxic kind of clinic environment and just i think being a new graduate's hard anyway but that in with a poor culture and I was pretty broken after that first sort of 14 months or so and actually at about that time I met my now husband who was a new graduate in another practice with a really good friend of mine in Australia and he was about to turn 28 and at that point you couldn't be over 28 to get your overseas came back and forth to New Zealand in the good old days when you could come back and forth and got tied up in foot mouth outbreak actually which was sort of a mix of horrible and amazing and life-changing all in one big package and then came back to Warrnambool in West Victoria where I worked as a small animal vet for three years before we did a big sort of round Australia trip and then came back to New Zealand and we ended up or Callum my husband ended up buying into the practice that we're in at the moment. We ended up having uh, family so I've got three boys who are 17, 15 and 12 and I have worked sort of mostly part-time and being the sort of mum at home, as well as juggling all those home things and and trying to thresh out a career as well. In amongst all the middle of that craziness, Callum, my husband who owned the practice, so there were two other partners and then a few associates as well, he decided that he had had enough of general practice and went to work for the NZVA as the head of veterinary services. I decided I couldn't leave the practice in the lurch and decided to buy, I say in inverted commas, Cal's shares and take over the practice. So suddenly had 22 staff and it was a fairly traumatic time. But a massive learning curve, like learned so much about owning a business and running, uh, you know, all the HR stuff and still wanting to be a good vet and amongst all this and trying to be a good mum as well. So it was a real a bit of a crazy time. And then after about three years and buying out one of the partners, my other partner and I decided to sell the practice we were approached by Pet Doctors. So we sold to Pet Doctors. So I've been lead vet, continued to stay on as lead vet and mostly sort of um it's supposed to be part time, but it's probably more like four days a week kind of management and lead vet role. So from a veterinary point of view, I'm one of those rare breed that still really love being a vet i love clinical (laughs) practice management stuff i also really have enjoyed so yeah it's been a great career so far and i have got lots of cool things i want to do still so which is awesome there's a heap of challenge around balancing family and wanting to have a good successful career that's fulfilling building a team that you know you trust and believe in so yeah Talk
0: about it forever. Well, I was just going to say there's a little bit of a backstory to this conversation because we actually had most of a conversation in December. But what happened was we've got a little baby and she started screaming in the background. And my wife wasn't really coping that well. And we decided to call the interview short. And as a result, we ended up having a discussion or conversation around sort of managing a young family. And I guess this sort of leads into an important part of our conversation, which is you know, how did going part-time affect your career in particular? Because it sounds like both you and Callum were at a similar stage of your career and you sort of saw him skyrocket Mm. and you going part-time, you kind of um, felt like you plateaued.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, I'm a bit of a competitive person, so that didn't help things really either. Aren't we all? Yeah, it's just such a bad combination. I talk to my other female vet friends about this fairly regularly. Not so much now because most of our kids are sort of at a stage where we can still do what we want to do career-wise, but certainly when they're really little and the time investment is, is massive, just trying to have that conversation around what happens with your career. And so for many years, I actually felt like I was just treading water, so learning as I went but you know really not sort of making I guess conscious decisions about where I wanted my career to go and being open and honest about what that looked like because it really was just trying to get through I was just trying to be a good vet to my clients and be a good teammate to my team but then feeling hugely guilty when I had to run out the door at three o'clock to go and pick everyone up and you know I felt like I was leaving a train wreck sometimes because there'd be stuff everywhere to do and all the full-timers had to pick up and now I'm one of the full-timers picking up the pieces for other people so it feels (laughs) like it it's come around but yeah that's a really challenging thing and particularly I think if you and your partner are in a similar profession or even if you're not I suspect but for me it was the same profession and it was hard to see him you know achieving and making a decision about what he wanted his career to look like and, and being brave and bold enough thank goodness to go ahead and do what what made him happy and what he wanted to do whereas you know I sort of had my martyr hat on I guess a little bit and you know it was always my choice to stay home to be with the kids but making that choice and and living it and trying to balance a career is is a really tricky thing so I did a lot of growing up and work I guess you'd call it self-work you know like trying to figure out who I was and you know where I wanted things to go so And it's, you know, I see it in my young vets now that have all got young families, just them trying to balance getting something meaningful happening on their day to day stuff in clinic and, you know, trying to plan their CPD so that they've got steps to take to go forward. But also being really mindful of the fact that, you know, they've all got families that they're trying to balance that out with as well. And and that's their priority as it should be. So, yeah,
0: I think it's easy to get caught up in this sort of, you know, scaling the ladder. Mm. And doing really well in your career but we've also got to remember that family is actually a really important part of being a human being and yeah especially in those early years the research shows that being a actively involved parent is so important to raising a decent human being yeah totally we kind of live in this culture now where particularly with females I suppose is there's sort of this expectation that you lean into your career and you don't sort of slow down to having a family but why not when you've Mm. got a young family it's just not realistic to I'm not saying that you need to go backwards in your career but I think there is a stage where it's actually justifiable to just kind of tread
1: yeah yeah that's right but it's quite hard to reconcile that in real life when you're the person who is a type A personality person and you see your husband doing amazing things. So that's the work that I had to do around accepting that. I mean, I don't regret it for a minute, but I just the only thing I regret is that I fought myself about it and yep. didn't just sit back and enjoy the ride and know that eventually when things calm down a bit, I could do what I wanted to career wise. And rather than panicking that it was never going to was never gonna happen. Because when you're in it, right, when you're in busy work, busy kids, busy life, running a household, taking kids here, there, and everywhere, getting them to daycare on time, et cetera, et cetera, it feels like it's going to go on forever. But the good news yeah. is that it doesn't. And you just have to, like you say, all the research points towards being in, as involved as, as you can. That said, I would have gone completely mad if I'd been a stay-at-home mum, but just because of the kind of person I am, so again that was yep. all part of the work of figuring out who i was and what i wanted <laughs> to do but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I i totally agree yeah i think it's a really important part of life and it's made me a better person
0: you went through your own sort of mid-vet life crisis so to speak so can you sort of elaborate on that yeah and, so and what you i guess that, that it all
1: came as a part i guess of treading water for a period of time when the kids were small and i was balancing all that stuff was to suddenly go well actually is this is this actually what I want to do and why do I get a bit nervous before I go to work every day you know is that normal Does, does everyone get a bit nervous before they go to work every day and just sort of figuring out what it was about work that made me nervous and made me stressed so I started spending quite a bit of time thinking about what happened on the days that went really well and what impact did I have on that outcome so was it that I Put on the right attitude that morning to go to work or was it that just everything seemed to go right and i had no control over it and it came down to realizing that the days that went well a i packed a good attitude for the day regardless of what had happened at home or in the lead up to getting to work that day and secondly they were the days when i really connected with my clients and Connected with the people around me. So, actually, made myself sort of available to be present in the moment and actually really do the best work that I could do. So, started me thinking about how we communicate with our clients. And I realized that actually, one of the things that I was really good at, that not every vet is good at, was communicating with people when I put my mind to it. And realized that there were some certain skills that I used at times and didn't use them all the time because I, you know, you. Unless you're aware of it, you don't necessarily pick up that you're changing. But certainly I, I felt that that was one of my skills, was being just really good at connecting with my clients, making them feel valued and respected. And as a result, those interactions in those cases, even if they had poor clinical outcomes, had really good emotional outcomes. And that made me feel really good and worthwhile. And it made me feel like actually all the drama that I went through to get to work this morning, um, packing lunches and packing people off, and you know, pulling out the dinner for dinner that night, and doing all the hanging out the three loads of washing, whatever it is you do before you get to work, it made me realize that actually it's worth doing all that so that I can get to work, so that I could have this feeling of success, even if it's not that I did an amazing procedure or I made an amazing diagnosis, but that I actually made a difference to these people and their pet, and they feel really looked after. So that sort of made me think, Wow, I wonder if we could teach this to everyone, you know, like for, for the people that find that hard, can we can we teach this? And so started to look around basically for kind of papers and information and, you know, what's happening in the world of communication and teaching bedside manner and discovered that there wasn't actually a lot in the veterinary world for that. Well, certainly at that time, there wasn't. And so started talking to my GP friends, actually, because it's quite a similar, you know, lots of similar skills that we use and similar challenges around, you know, getting through the work on time and connecting with people and being trusted and developing rapport and all those sorts of things. They do a lot more than we do as far as sort of peer-reviewed consultations. And so basically taping their conversations and getting feedback on how they perform in that regard. Uh, they have a lot more training about it at university and, and that sort of thing. So started looking at what was available in the GP world and basically tailoring it to the veterinary world and then started taking it to our teams around the country, which probably means that I have to just have a pause here and explain who my teams around the country are. Pet Doctors bought us eventually. uh, National Vet Care bought Pet Doctors and then Vet Partners bought National Vet Care. So I'm part Stoke Veterinary Hospital, which is where I work and am lead vet for, uh, part of a bigger group of Vet Partners clinics across New Zealand. So and one of the great things and there are many great things, but we won't debate that in this conversation about being part of a corporate is that collegiality and kind of group network that comes with being part of a bigger group. So We have a lot of CPD and collegial discussion and that sort of thing. Yeah, so one of the things I started doing was talking at the leadership groups about how people could improve, I guess, their bedside manner or their life skills, which used to be called soft skills. So how we communicate, how we connect with people, how we develop rapport, all that sort of thing. So And and it's been really life-changing for a lot of vets, which is, for me, The best part about it, you know, people going, oh, I'm having a light bulb moment about why that didn't go right with that client.
0: Yeah. I'm just going to sort of do an interjection here before we sort of go into the details of the vet life skills and say from my personal experience, I had this um, real sobering moment as a new grad where I had a review with a couple of the senior vets and they asked me what one of my strengths was and I said, oh, I think I'm pretty good with the clients (laughs) and then they said to me actually no like, oh really you need to improve oh in a lot yeah. of areas." and it was a real sobering moment but one thing i have learned since then is that you can actually yes. learn those skills like they reckon that iq is fixed but yes. eq is something that you can improve upon and learn and i would say that and part of it's just growing up as a person mm-hmm. you know i was 23 when i graduated but I definitely know now that my people skills are a lot better than they mm, were mm. going back almost 10 years. And for people that feel like they struggle to connect with their clients, yes, it's just good to know, I suppose, that it is something that you can learn. It's not, uh, it's not like um, sports yeah, exactly. skills, you can either catch a ball or you can't. These are things you can actually learn. So on that note, there's a lot of things that we could talk about with vet life skills, mm-hmm. but I was going to focus on three areas. And the first one is... Probably the most important one, which is how do you improve rapport with clients and client communication in general?
1: If you've got rapport, people tend to trust you if you if you develop rapport with people. And you can fast track rapport. Before I knew all this stuff, I would think, oh, I, I've got rapport with them because I've known them for so long. And so certainly if you spend enough time with people and you connect with them, you can develop rapport. But you can actually do that a lot quicker if you know some top tips. And one of them is that if you match the type of speaking, the volume and the tone and the pitch of your voice to the person who you're talking to, you want to do it in a relatively subtle way. But, you know, if you use the type of language that the person is using to you, it makes you more likeable in their eyes. And it needs to be a little bit, you know, it needs to be authentic, but it's it's in the range of probably what you would do normally anyway. For example, if you've got a quiet little old lady sitting out there with her very elderly cat and she's very softly spoken and uses um, quite proper language and is quite formal, then you don't speak really loudly with her and flap your arms around and use colloquialism. So it is about matching the communication style to the client that you've got in front of you. So that's, I guess, the first thing. And then the second thing I think that's probably the most important thing is show curiosity for their problem. So really spend time understanding what the problem that they're bringing to you means. Ask questions. Once you've asked those questions, make sure that you feed back to them. So you say, for example, oh, so so he did vomit three times and the second vomit looked a wee, like it had a bit, bit of blood in it and he hasn't eaten for three days did I get that right and again you're using your tone and your volume and the appropriate style of language to match that client but you're showing that you've really listened to what they've said which is showing respect you've been curious about their problem so they know that you want to help and then you're giving them the opportunity to feedback and make sure that there's anything that you've missed so they're kind of really simple things that you can do the other Big thing, I think, is is showing respect to, to clients no matter what the situation that they're in. And this is really important for, I mean, the range of people that we see as veterinarians is massive depending on which practice you're in. And and I think being able to be respectful of every type of client, I think, is, is a really important part of developing rapport.
0: One thing that I remember you saying mm. previously, just going back to the diarrhoea, is, you know, you'll get someone that comes in and they're like, they mentioned about three times the fact that mm. they've got diarrhoea on the carpet. And yes. even though to us that's not really a big deal clinically, yeah. it's clearly a big deal to the client to yes. sort of emphasise and, and acknowledge that Oh, it's pretty average that you've had to clean up the carpet. Yes, exactly, and I think there's a lot of hidden
1: stuff that comes out in conversations with clients if you're listening that you pick up on. So for that client, probably the carpet was the biggest issue. And, I mean, probably all of us can't count on one hand how many times someone's been, or an animal's been put to sleep because of, you know, furnishing damage or whatever, but often that's uppermost. And, you know, for the client that mentions it, it's a big deal to them. If they don't mention it, it's probably isn't too big a deal yeah. but if they mention it once yes it's a problem if they mention it two or three times then then it's really significant and and i think that's exactly right steve just offer you know just saying acknowledging the fact that that's that's difficult oh so you've actually been up all night cleaning up carpet have you that must be really hard and again you're showing you know you're showing empathy you're showing that you've really listened and understood the problem for them or even you know they've missed inside oh was that on the carpet or the floorboards? Just, Asking the question. This is a really sad, sad, sad yeah. state of affairs that we're talking about So on floors, eh? It's
0: part of the job. And I think it's easy for us to mm. forget how important that is to some people. So imagining you're in a situation mm. where you've got the rapport down-packed and you feel like your client mm. communication is really good. There are some scenarios where things don't really go to plan and this is something I'm particularly curious about and there's two examples that i want to talk about and one is Mm -hmm. you've got an emotionally invested client and the animal is very Mm -hmm. sick and the prognosis isn't great how do you sort of deal with a situation like that
1: there's a few things that i try and keep in mind and and i think with any of those these skills that we that i'm teaching through vet life skills it is even when you're quite good at them it's really mindful to go into an appointment or a situation with a really clear plan in place and go back to basics so that you don't forget stuff. So usually the things that I try really hard, particularly in that situation is to really show that I understand their concern and, I guess, be mindful of their investment and let them know that I can see how invested they are in their pet. And then the second thing is being really clear about yeah. your communication. So, for example, I would say in that situation, oh, look, I'm so sorry you guys are going through this. This must be really hard. What I wanted to do today was talk about what's going on with Zeus and what we can do. We're going to call him Zeus, and what we need to do, and discuss the options, and then my job is also to work with you guys to figure out what it is that is going to be best, the best solution for him and for you guys. So use the language around collaborative healthcare so that they don't, so that the client feels empowered and that they are a part of the decision-making process. I think part of the stress and the angst for clients is just that lack of feeling of control, and that they're going to end up in a situation where they have to make a decision they don't want to, or that they don't agree with. So I think using that language around collaborative care and relationship-centered care, so making sort of a team approach, I guess, because at the end of the day, and I often say this, at the end of the day, you are his expert. I can tell you from a clinical point of view and from a prognosis point of view, but at the end of the day, you know what he will cope with and what you guys can manage as well. So it's our job today, me to give you all the information and then us to as a, as a team, figure out what's what's gonna be best for him. So I think, you know, sharing that job and making it a relationship-centered care, I think is really important. And the other thing is sort of trying to figure out what the medical literacy of your client is as well, how fair they are with medical terms, what their basic understanding is, and actually ask and say, look, I'm gonna explain things And you need to be really clear with me, the stuff that you understand and the stuff you don't understand, because everyone's got a different understanding of medical terms. And it's really important that you understand what I'm talking about, because you're going to need to help me make this decision around what we're going to do. So I think that's the real thing, is just remembering that they're truly human. And this is an important this this pet, this animal is a hugely important part of their life and showing respect in that regard, but also involving them in that decision and and stop that awful feeling of powerlessness that often causes anger in clients. Mm. So
0: this sort of brings us to another important part and one I particularly struggle with is Mm. you've got a very sick animal. It doesn't really matter any scenario, but particularly Mm. with a sick animal with poor prognosis and inevitably mm. you have to bring up the conversation of cost do you have a particular strategy for bringing up cost in a way that doesn't make it sound like it's so hard Doesn't you're focused on you know how much you're going to be charging the client
1: well they do talk about cost but you know in the medical world typically <laughs> if you're that sick then hopefully our fine health system kicks into gear but I think again the main thing to avoid is the shame trigger around lack of money, because that's usually one of the one of the things that really causes angst and anger and grief and guilt for clients. And so if you can avoid that, I think that makes a a big difference so for example let's say zeus he's really sick these people absolutely love him they're worried probably the first thing they're worried about is how they're going to afford the bill so they're really upset that he's sick but they also know that vets cost money and that there's no um, public health s- system for them and so that's probably uppermost in their mind and again a little bit comes down to reading the client but i'll actually say in similar situation so one of one of my jobs today is to go through with you what i think is going on with him and what other tests we could do to to get a definitive answer and then also to talk about what what the likely prognosis is what we can do to to get him well if at all and the other part of of that conversation needs to be money because unfortunately in the animal system there is no funding for healthcare. care so one of the important discussions we have with everyone, is what sort of costs are involved and what's going to work for you and your family. So I'm usually pretty upfront about it, to be honest. And I say it's, and I often say, you know, that one of the worst bits about my job is that we do have to con- take into consideration. And I'll sometimes say, look, if you had won Lotto yesterday, then this would probably not be a conversation that we'd have to have. However, for 99% of the population, how much the veterinary care costs is an important part of the discussion. It might not weigh into the decision you make, but it is definitely part of the conversation that we need to have. So I often will say for almost everyone because it makes them feel like they're not the only person in the world that struggles with money the other thing that i'll say too is that you know because it's such a big issue with vet bills and you know it's often things we don't expect to happen so we haven't always made contingencies we have payment options for that very reason so if that's something you want to talk about we can certainly discuss that as well so yeah i am clear i try to remember in my head clear and kind unclear is unkind i think that's a, a quote from maybe Brenna Brown or someone like that. Particularly when I've got difficult conversations to have, that's, the bit, that's my mantra, clear and kind. Unclear is unkind. Um, and respect, yeah. avoiding shame, yeah. the way yeah. I kind of prepare myself for those conversations.
0: Yeah, so there is one other sort of situation where things go wrong and imagining that mm. maybe previous conversations didn't mm. go right and you mm. are now dealing with an aggressive client or an angry client what strategies do you have to you know deal with people yeah like that?
1: it's oh, it's awful isn't it and it is even when you're you know 22 years out and have been dealing with it for 22 years it's still something that gets your heart rate up and gets you brain ticking over and you know the heart beating fast and all that sort of stuff the thing that i try to remember is that often when they're in the height of anger that the Reptilian brain takes over for these people, so they lose the perspective yes, yeah. and the ability for their full brain to do its job. The hind brain is is firing, and so their heart beats fast. They say things they don't mean. They're angry, etc. So, usually, I try and avoid that situation. And the way I would do that would be time, basically. So, take I obviously try and take them away from the consult room and say, look, you know there's obviously some major stuff going on for you and I, I want to try and understand what's going on for you and sometimes when we're this upset it's actually better just to take five or ten minutes just to sit for a minute and then let's have a really good discussion and I'll see how I can help mostly trying to prevent my hind brain taking over because that that is what happens right you <laughs> get defensive and and your heart beats fast and yeah palms get all sweaty and your underarms get all sweaty and you know it's really easy to react in in a similar ilk so trying really like really focusing on keeping calm myself and then it comes down to curiosity really trying to understand what it is that's got this person so upset and it will be something there'll be something that's been said that has really tipped that trigger point for them And I think back to some of the situations that I've had in the past where that's happened. And one in particular, actually, which I was thinking about the other day, it was a Doberman. And I don't think I even said anything. Because I actually really loved Dobermans, but this client obviously felt that she'd had some experiences before where people were scared of them or whatever. And there was another dog walking. I said, oh, would you mind just giving us some room while we get out the door? And she took that to mean that her dog I thought her dog was aggressive. And so, you know, there'd been a whole lot of backstory as well. But that was the moment that that tipped her over the edge. And when we talked about it afterwards, that kept coming up. And so it's often, if you can be really curious about what the issue is and try and understand what has caused that, then I think that makes a massive difference, just trying to understand and then reflectively yeah. listen again. So that same thing. Okay, so for you, the biggest issues were that the bill didn't get explained to you properly. He came home with a a, a, knotted, a matted area on the back of his head and we didn't call you the next day to see how things are going. Have I got that right? Is that, you know, really, is that the stuff? And and I usually try and say it so it doesn't sound flippant. You know, oh, well, yes, he had a knot on his head or, you yeah. know, knot on his coat or whatever. Or, or, you know, I can see that that would be really, you know, that wouldn't be the level of care that you would expect. So have I got that right? Is there anything else yeah. that contributed to you feeling the way that you're feeling now? Just really reflectively listen and show curiosity to the problem
0: different but similar scenario in that I had this dog that was really sick and for the life of me I can't actually remember what was wrong with the dog I thought I dealt with the situation really well that we had got to the stage where we were having discussions about euthanasia because of quality of life and stuff and then I found out through one of our nurses that they were really angry and wanted to go to another vet for a second opinion Um, so when I discharged the dog at the end of the day, I was quite disappointed because yeah. I thought I would dealt with the situation really well. And having knowing a little bit about the conflict situations, I just sort of took a sort of an open stance and just mm-hmm. said, "Look, I understand you guys aren't particularly happy. Mm-hmm. Can you just explain to me, you know, why you're looking for a second opinion and and help me understand where we've gone wrong?" And as it turns out, they didn't have any issue with anything that I'd done, but. What had happened was that our clinic had a policy of not doing euthanasias at home because of covid so they'd contacted Mm. another vet clinic that actually Mm. ended up offering them euthanasia at home and it's really interesting if you actually listen to them often it'll be a very specific issue and and not necessarily related to anything that you've done
1: yes and i think going in with that curious mindset like you did in that situation and being completely open to learning what you could have done differently totally changed the outcome for you, right? Like if you hadn't have asked and said in a really open fashion, I'd really like to understand what it is that's made you make that decision. You might not have even known. You might have just continued to think that you, you know, that there was something that you'd done that, but it wasn't anything you'd done at all. Well done for asking and and also for asking in a non defensive way. I think is really important too.
0: And they say with conflict, it's um, really important to deal with the issue, Mm, not the person. Exactly. So if you sort of focus and say, um, why are you so angry Mm. or why are you so pissed Mm. off? Or what have we done to Mm. piss you off? It's very sort of aggressive. Whereas if it's more like, help me understand why you're looking for a second opinion Mm. at another vets and it's sort of dealing with the the scenario. So it kind of takes away that. And going back to what you were saying about the reptilian brain, it sort of goes away from that very personal sort of attacky. Kind of fight or flight type yeah, stuff yeah, totally. we've sort of talked about a few difficult situations the last question that i had in relation to vet life skills is how do you ensure on a sort of day-by-day basis that you actually practice what you preach and in particular because i feel like this is very relevant to pretty much every vet in the country mm. at the moment is you're overworked and it's a long busy day and it's all well and good being you know this the perfect vet mm. at 9am in the morning but it gets to 4.30, you're running behind. Mm. How do you practice what you preach when you know, you're know you sort of overwhelmed, you're very busy?
1: Yeah, oh, it's a constant learn. It's a constant work on. I think it's like any of those skills that you learn as you get older that you just need to keep practicing and keep, keep working on it. And it's never perfect. Like Some days I nail it and some days I don't. But I try really hard. There's a few things that I do and I do do quite a lot of consulting. And I think it's probably more pertinent to consulting than it is to being out out the back doing procedures because you've just got that constant barrage of people of different people every 15 to, to 30 minutes coming through the door depending on what case you're dealing with and they want their you know their two cents worth and their their time and you've got to be a fresh face at the start of each one so for me it's a lot about being prepared so I always have like anal about my consult room, it has to be quite clean and tidy and I have my drink bottle and my diary and all the bits that I kind of need there. And then I try really hard at the start of every consult to be present in the moment that I'm in. You know, 15 years ago, what I would have said sounded really woo-woo, but having done quite a lot of (laughs) self-work on on mindfulness and, and meditation and stress management, it's really important to me to try and just take a deep breath. So often sort of a grounding thing for me is just feeling my feet on the floor and taking a big deep breath. I have a good look and prepare myself for the consult and it only takes like two minutes or so to have a quick read through the history, check for any master problems, check the first name of the client because I really, to me that's really important to be able to talk to people and use their name and make them feel important and so prepare myself that way and even if that takes two or three minutes, it's probably the most important two or three minutes because then I don't start the consult on the back foot. So that's a big part of it for me. And then trying to stay present throughout the consult. So remembering all the stuff that we've just talked about around connection and and developing rapport and actually being present in the moment. One of the things I think that's really hard for vets and particularly in general practice, or it's probably any practice in reality, is to get rid of your busy mind and try you know, you might have three animals in hospital that you're really worried about, one of whom you think is really sick and you're waiting on bloods to come back. And, you know, are those bloods back? I hope the girls have syringe fed him, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So try and get rid of all the extraneous stuff so that you're really focusing on what you're doing. And that does definitely help my stress levels is dealing with one thing at a time. And also, you know, realizing that you can only do so much. And stop trying to be a superhero, I think, is a big part of that. And, you know, they talk about sort of a lot of the work that Brené Brown has done around wholehearted living and to live a wholehearted life and feel worthy and all those sorts of things. A lot of it is around having boundaries around your value sets and and what you're prepared to do. So I think being not afraid to say, actually, this is as much as I can do today. Work as a team with your team and say, look, I'm struggling. Can you do mind just picking up this appointment? I've just overloaded. So yeah, having boundaries, being mindful in the work that you do, remembering that connection is the key to happiness and doing a good job, whether it be a clinical job or an emotional outcome, if you can connect with clients and develop rapport, that creates a a much easier pathway and actually one that's sort of enjoyable and feels worthwhile at the end of the day.
0: I think there's always going to be challenges with those particularly busy days. But as you say, you know, um, potentially palming off a consult to one of your colleagues and just not trying to be a superhero as a starting point, give you a little bit of a chance to have a breath of fresh Mm. air. In terms of the vet life skills, we have only scratched the surface and having actually seen your full presentation, I know there's a lot more that we can get into we'll leave it for today if. but for vets interested in learning more and maybe thinking that they need to improve their people skills where can we find out more about vet life skills
1: yes yeah, so i've got a website uh, which is com. so it's got a bit of my story and some tips and tricks but also you can contact me through the website and we can do sort of team workshops, which is often quite a nice way to do it, which is what we did with Steve's team up in Todonga. but also sort of one-on-one coaching and presentations and things too. So a fair bit to offer and learn, and I guess the one takeaway would be good for everyone to take away is that your IQ is fixed, but your EQ can grow, and improving that will have a massive impact on the way that you practice and the enjoyment of your job.
0: Yeah. And I'm assuming that it's not just available to vet partners clinics? Oh,
1: no, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) No, but they're definitely getting a fair bit of it. (laughs) But, yeah, no, open to everyone. And In fact, you know, for me, just imparting that knowledge and sharing and seeing the way it's changed the way I practice is really inspiring. So keen to get as many people up and running with those things as possible. Awesome,
0: Meg. Thanks for your time. Oh,
1: thank you. It's been a pleasure and, and I'm really pleased that Bubba's nice and settled today
0: (laughs) thanks for listening to the vet chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Early this show is proudly supported by Verbeck if you want to find out more go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast